This morning, we're going to be back in Revelation chapter 2, continuing our study through the seven churches. And two weeks ago, we began talking about the church at Smyrna. And so if you're in Revelation chapter 2, let's read verses 8 through 11 just to get reminded of where we were. Remember, each of these seven churches was a literal historical church in the Apostle John's day. These were real churches with real people in them, just like you, just like me, and, and they had real challenges. But each of these seven churches also received a specific letter of instruction from Jesus Christ himself. And that's pretty cool to, to know that Christ literally specifically called out these seven churches and had something very specific and unique to say to each one of them. That's an amazing thought. Um, it's just amazing. It's like if we went to the mailbox and, man, here is a letter from Christ himself. Uh, man, what an amazing thing. And each of those seven churches not only historically were, 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 were real, but there is a prophetic uh, application. As we study those seven churches, we see an entire snapshot of church history. We'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, let's read Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. The Bible says, And under the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death. And I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And so not only were these seven churches historically real churches, but we, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. From John's perspective, John is looking backwards from the vantage point of the day of the Lord. And what he's going to write are the things that he has seen. In other words, he's, he's looking from the second coming of Christ backwards, and he's looking at all of church history. And, and what we said was that these seven churches not only were real historical churches, but they also give us an encapsulation of all of church history from the book of Acts to the rapture of the church. And so as, as you see that on the screen, we talked about the church at Ephesus, which was the church period that, that really ran from the death of the apostles to about 200 AD. And we saw in the church of Ephesus that were in that period, historically, there were people that claimed to be apostles and were not. And, and Jesus Christ said that those people that claimed to be apostles and not were actually liars, okay? And, th and then the church of Smyrna represents the church period history from the year 200, to approximately 325 AD. And again, these are just kind of rough figures. And, and we're going to see this morning that that period of church history was one of the most devastating periods of church history that's ever existed. Because more people died and were martyred in that period of time than probably any other period. It, it was a tremendous time of persecution and, and suffering in church history. And then you'll see the rest of the seven churches. And again, that, that'll be a slide that uh, is continually up in our series uh, over the next several weeks and months. Okay, so what we're doing is we're looking at each of these churches and we're saying, hey, uh, there's kind of an, a, an outline that God's word gives us. Each one of these churches is introduced. And then we see something about Christ that relates to that church. Then we see Christ give each church a commendation. Here's what you're doing good. And then there's a correction. Here's what needs attention. And then there's always a challenge. And, and we're kind of using that outline to walk through each of these seven churches. And we started this church at Smyrna two weeks ago. And let me just remind you that the name of this church is significant because Smyrna is the same word that's translated in your Bible as myrrh. And as we studied myrrh all the way through the Bible, we saw that myrrh is always connected with death. And this church experienced tremendous persecution. Smyrna, the church name Smyrna, as he writes to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna is only mentioned in the book of Revelation. And again, this is a church that was challenged to be faithful to death. Uh, and, and we see 
the persecution. We will see the persecution that they experience. And then we learned that Christ reveals something about himself to this church. And we see that in verse 8. He said, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And what we learned two weeks ago was that this church, because they were called to, to be faithful to the death, well, they needed to learn something about Christ. And Christ was the one that, that died, and yet he's alive. He died for our sin. He died for us. He died according to the scriptures, but he'll never die again. And this church needed to understand that, that every bit of suffering and persecution that you're going to experience Christ has already experienced it, even to the point of death. And yet, his resurrection power is sufficient. Christ died, but he rose again from the dead. And there's victory in Christ, and so there's nothing in Christ, there's nothing that can defeat you. We, we talked about that, and, and man, and we're going to get more into it today, but I'm just telling you, the, the worst thing that, that anyone could do to us is to take our life. And at that moment, we're victorious in Christ. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. And, 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 and so then we talked about the commendation, and, and Christ speaks to this church, and he says, I know thy works and thy tribulation and thy poverty. Thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And we, we started working through this last week, and we said that Smyrna, or two weeks ago, we said that Smyrna was a working church. Because Christ said, I know thy works. But, but it, they were also a suffering church because he says, I know your tribulation. And can I just tell you that their tribulation, their difficulties, their persecutions didn't stop them from doing what God had called them to do. And, and we can learn from that. We can be encouraged that even in difficulty, we can still be obedient and faithful to what God's called us to do, even in the midst of our suffering. And we even learned that this was a poor church. I mean, listen, they didn't have the resources that maybe other churches had. I mean, God says, I know your poverty, but then he says, but truly you're rich. And you think about that for a second. And we talked about how, man, if you look at our church, man, we're blessed. We have a building, we have air conditioner, we have screens, we, you know, we have microphones, we have all the different things. Truly, we are rich. We have a lot of material resources to do ministry with. But do you really need all that to do ministry all you need is the Word of God and people. That's all you need to do ministry. It doesn't mean that that's all we want. Many times we want, <laughs> listen, we want things. And, and depending on which person you talk to in this church, their list of wants is different. Cody's list of wants is different than mine. I mean, I'm praying for a jet. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Cody just wants a new sound system. I mean, there's just different. That's a joke, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> right. Just the landing gear. That's all, I can that's all we can afford is like two tires for the landing gear. You know, it, man, this church accomplished what they needed to accomplish in their poverty. And, uh, and many times we look at material resources or the lack of resources as a limitation. And yet God says you don't need any of that. What you really need is a Bible and people that are just willing to do what God's called us to do. That's all you need. That's all you need. And so this church was a poor church. And so this morning, we're going to pick up right there in verse 9. Let me pray again, and then we're going to pick it up in verse 9, and we'll continue through the rest of the outline. Father, we, we thank you again for the morning. I pray that you, you bless us as we study. Uh, we need to learn some things from this church uh, so we can apply to our life. Uh, we want to be obedient and faithful even to the death. And uh, God, help us to be encouraged from this church, uh, and may we apply principles that can apply to our lives and, and corporately to our church. And we'll give you the glory for that, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, go back to verse 9. So we, we talked about the works and the tribulation and the poverty. And then, and then it says of this church, he says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Man, that's a really weird verse uh, when you read that. And so let's talk about it. Smyrna was a dividing church. And, and what I mean by that is they were... They were a dividing church, as in rightly dividing the word of God, as in rightly dividing the people groups within the word of God, because God says that there are people that say that they are Jews, but truly they aren't, but they're actually of the synagogue of Satan. Okay, 
And we mentioned a few minutes ago that at the church of Ephesus, the first church that we studied, there were people in that church that said they were apostles, and they weren't, and God called them liars, and, and God actually commended the church at Ephesus for calling out those liars. They also hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and so now in Smyrna, those people that started as false apostles in Ephesus are now growing into a religious system, a false religious system, complete with a synagogue and falsely claiming to be Jews. And as you study church history, this is the progression of Satan's false religious system. And so get this in your notes. The, the church at Smyrna knew 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32. And, and this is important and I hope you know this, because there are different people groups in the Bible. And if you don't understand and rightly divide the Bible according to people groups, well, you don't have a leg to stand on. And, and all of a sudden, you may claim identity and ownership of things that aren't truly yours biblically. So let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 32, the Bible says, Give none offense neither to the, the Jews nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. And so how many different groups are represented in that one verse? There are three different groups. Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. Okay, so that means that each of those is unique and different from one another. The Jews, if you don't know, are just the nation of Israel. That's the, that's the people that are of the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes. They are the nation of Israel that God called out and chose as a nation all throughout the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, that's a specific group of people. Gentiles are everybody else. That's real hard, isn't it? God makes it so simple. And then the church is either someone who is a Jew or a Gentile who's gotten saved. And now they are in the body of Christ. They are, they are part of the bride of Christ. They're in the body of Christ where, where Paul says in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but you're one in Christ, in the body of Christ. Okay, so, so man, what is, what is God trying to teach us this morning? Well, number one, he's trying to teach us that Satan operates in the realm of false religion. Satan operates in the realm of false religion. And I don't know what you think Satan operates or where you think Satan operates in this world. Many times we think of the most despicable, grotesque places and, and, and say that that's got to be where the devil is operating. But the truth is that many times those places and those things are just the end result of our flesh. The wickedness, the fornication, the murders, the idolatry. That's just an outworking of your sinful flesh. Where the devil works is in the world and the realm of false religion. And, and according to, to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, Satan has a synagogue. And that's very interesting. A synagogue is a building. It's a place of corporate gathering. It's a place of prayer. And it's a place of teaching and preaching. And as a matter of fact, if you study through uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, when you see a synagogue... Man, it, it seems a lot like a church. It's a place where people gather and talk about God. They open a, 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 a portion of scripture and they read it and they teach it. And man, it sounds a lot like a church. But the problem is that it isn't a church. God says that this thing is called the synagogue of Satan. Okay, what is that? It's mentioned again in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9. You can just make a reference. Listen, again... Concerning the church of Philadelphia, he says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. And, and so in this Smyrna church period, there were people that were claiming the identity of the Jew, but God says they're liars. And, and they're part of this synagogue of Satan because Satan works in the system of false religion. So right now on Sunday morning, in places all over this country, people are standing and doing what I'm doing, and yet in some of those places, it's nothing more than a meeting and a congregation and a synagogue of the devil himself. And they'll be meeting in a building, and there'll be a corporate gathering, and there'll be prayer, and they'll be teaching, and they'll be preaching, 
but it won't have anything to do in, in worship and music, and it won't have anything to do with the God of the Bible. And they'll use the Bible, by the way. And it won't have anything to do with biblical Christianity. Not only does Satan have a synagogue, but he also has ministers. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, the Bible says, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to their works. Man, are you kidding me? The devil has a synagogue, and the devil has ministers. It sounds like he operates in the realm of false religion. It, it sounds like he operates in the realm of false doctrine, and specifically concerning people that say that they are Jews, and they're not. Okay, well, let's, let's unpack that a second. We need to, know, to realize that God says, according to Revelation 2 and verse 9, God calls this type of teaching blasphemy. So God has a strong stance against whatever is happening at the church of Smyrna. He says, this is blasphemous. And Paul even warns us in the New Testament, you know, a lot of times we think of blasphemy, we're, we're, we're just thinking of blaspheming God's name, right? Well, actually, when you blaspheme the identity of a certain people group and claim their identity, God also calls that blasphemy because God is the one who gave them that identity. So Colossians 3 and verse 8 says, put now off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. God says for a Christian, listen, blasphemy should not be part of the communication of your mouth. And we don't ever think about, you know, usually we talk about like blaspheming God's name. But we also need to connect that we need to make sure we're the right people, the right identity, and not claim someone else's identity. So... God's word says this type of thinking and teaching should be put off. So you need to be aware of people who teach that God is finished with the Jew. And I'm going to give you some things that probably be a little hard to swallow, but that's okay. Anybody that says that God is done with the Jew, that's a blasphemous statement, according to God's word. Be, beware of those who teach that God has replaced Israel with the church. You need to beware of that because that's blasphemous. People are saying that they are Jews and are not. You need to beware of people who teach that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. Because they're not the same thing. And you need to beware of those with an amillennial viewpoint. In other words, that we as the church are spreading the kingdom of God through physical means. Social gospel issues. And somehow that the church is now establishing God's literal earthly kingdom now. That, that's a false doctrinal system. And so let me give you some examples. You guys ready? There are certain people groups that claim that they still have the apostolic gifts. And as I read the Bible, all the apostles are Jews. And all of those gifts were a certain, for a certain time and for a certain season and for a certain people group. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22, the Bible says that Jews require a sign. And so the modern charismatic movement, the modern uh, Pentecostal movement, literally is a group of people saying that they are Jews, and God's word says they're not. And God says that false religious system is blasphemous. Now, listen, I'm not against any person that's a charismatic or Pentecostal, but that system of religion is absolutely unbiblical. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 22 says, Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. And to claim the identity of something and, and, and someone that God has reserved a sign for, well, that's blasphemous. And so the modern, the modern charismatic movement is nothing more than a group of people identifying as Jews, and the truth is they're not. You know, there are other people that would claim that the church has replaced the nation of Israel and that all the physical promises to the nation of Israel are now spiritually applied to the church as the true Israel of God. It's called replacement theology. God says that's blasphemous. 
God says that's of the synagogue of Satan. Don't get mad at the messenger, man. I didn't say it. God said it. God says that there's a synagogue of Satan that promotes Judaistic identity of people that truly aren't the Jews. There's another group of people that believe Christ is ruling this earth through his triumphant church. The one universal church. And they expand that kingdom through crusades and violence. And throughout history, their attempts to establish a kingdom of heaven rule through a church. Listen, any religious group that professes to replace, supplant, or supersede the nation of Israel is blasphemous. Because Jesus Christ said so. And, and I want you to understand this morning that there will be a literal, physical, earthly kingdom where the visible, literal nation of Israel will be the chief of all nations on this planet, according to Romans 11, verses 25 to 29. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. And if God ever tells you that you can be ignorant of something, you probably can be ignorant of something. If he tells you, don't be ignorant, there's a propensity to be ignorant. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits, the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. And as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election. Everybody wants to talk about the elect. Well, you better get the elect right in the Bible. Because as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake, and they is Israel. For the gifts of calling and calling of God are without repentance. And, and we wrestle that verse, verse 29, out of context all the time. But the gifts and calling specifically are concerning Israel. God gifted them. God called them. And it is without repentance. And so get this key in your notes. If you're ignorant of this, you'll be wise in your own conceit. And you'll fall prey to false doctrine. And I know this morning is a little deeper than, than maybe what you're used to on Sunday morning. But it's important. Because this group at, at Smyrna had the challenge of people saying that they were Jews and are not. And Jesus himself says they're of the synagogue of Satan and they're blasphemers. And so if we're ignorant of this mystery, God says that our conceitedness, our imagination, our opinion, well, those aren't God's thoughts. Those aren't God's opinions. And God says we're to cast down those imaginations. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And listen, modern Christianity is full of people and full of systems and full of organizations that say they are Jews and are not. That is the modern Christian world that we live in. You say, well, I don't really see that. You need to spend a little time on the Internet. You need to do a little research. Because there are plenty of religious systems that absolutely claim an identity that's not theirs and claim promises that aren't theirs and claim inheritances that aren't theirs, and oh, by the way, claim gifts that are not theirs. So you say, what do you do with all that? Well, what you do is you rightly divide your Bible, and you stay faithful to what you know. Okay, so, so, so that is the commendation. God, God looks at this church, and again, this period of church history, as you look at you know, 200 to 325 A.D., literally what you see happening is... is the synagogue of Satan, this false religious system gaining ground and claiming a false identity that will continue on throughout church history. Okay, number four, the correction. And I told you that every church, the Lord seems to get, just give a correction to. Well, here's the correction to the church at Smyrna. None. There was no correction. Now, I think that's very interesting. There's only one other church in these seven churches that the Lord didn't didn't correct, and that was the Church of Philadelphia. And we'll get to that in like six months. But Smyrna and Philadelphia. And I got to thinking, why, why did the Lord not have anything to, to say to this church in form of correction? 
Was it because they were just perfect? I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt they were perfect. But for Smyrna, probably it was because of the severe persecution that they were facing. Because they literally were, 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 were tasked to be faithful to death. In other words, there probably wasn't time or energy to focus on the distractions of this life because life was, was honestly probably short for them. And, and I'll say it like this. You know, holiness probably was a characteristic of that church at Smyrna because they were literally one breath away from eternity. You know, think about this. What if every day you lived your life like it was your last day? How would you live your life differently? And the truth is, if you lived every day like it was your last day, you probably wouldn't have anything to correct in your life. And the church of Smyrna didn't either. He had nothing to say as far as correction. He, 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 there was no admonition to, to correct. Why? Because the charge and the challenge was, you're going to suffer. Be faithful to death. God help us to learn, man, from that. You know, the Lord would probably have less correction in our own life if we lived every day as if it were our last day. I had a good friend at, at Decatur Baptist this week. This guy, this guy I met like just a week or two after I got saved, um, playing basketball, older gentleman in the church, just a zealous guy, uh, you know, rough cob on the basketball court, man. I, I was only like three weeks old in the Lord, met this guy, we were playing basketball, and I thought I was going to kill the guy. You know, I was really testing my walk with Jesus uh, because he's trying to rough me up. But I, I came to, to know this brother over the next several years. Uh, man, his wife this week collapsed and passed away. No, no warning, no sickness, no nothing. Everything was fine, and then she, was, she collapsed and was gone. That was it. Just like that. Well, if you knew that was going to happen, how would you live your life different? Because you don't know if it's going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen. For the church at Smyrna, they didn't know when the severity of that persecution would, would end in their life, would, would it result in the end of their life. You don't know that. And so the point is to be ready. And if you live ready, well, the Lord probably won't have to correct you. He probably won't have to correct you. Okay, let's get to the last point. So, so let's look at the, the challenge because this is, this is again, where, where God narrows down the focus to this church. He says in verse 10, Fear none of the things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now, we've already seen that there's this synagogue of Satan at work where, where people are claiming a false identity, but now we're seeing that the devil himself is going to be responsible to cast some of these people into prison. And so get this key in your notes. Satan not only operates in the realm of false religion, but he operates in the realm of political powers. Satan operates in the realm of political powers. And, and so you say, well, I don't know if I believe that. Well, okay, hopefully you believe the Bible. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. You guys remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness? In Luke chapter 4, verse 5, it says, The devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, now listen, this is the devil talking to God, Jesus Christ. The devil said to him, to Christ, All this power will I give thee. And the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whosoever I will, I give it. If thou there, therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And listen, you can take this where it lands. Whatever your political preference is, it doesn't matter. And if your political system is anything other than Jesus Christ on the throne of his glory, ruling and reigning with righteousness. Well, you need to change your political opinion. Because the devil has control and power over the kingdoms of this world, and he is able to give that power to whomsoever he will. So you can vote for whoever you want to vote for. 
but you better have a biblical mindset concerning the authority and the powers of this world. In Revelation chapter 2, we have a church that is warned not only about Satan's religious system, but also about his political system. And by the way, that points to a future time that will be on full display and full control in the tribulation period. But you need to understand that right now, he's already in control of the kingdoms of this world. And that's why you don't need to get wrapped around the axle about politics. Who cares? If it's anything less than Jesus Christ on the throne, you have, as a, as a Christian, have the wrong political opinion. See, there's some people that, that love Trump more than they love Jesus Christ on the throne. Can I, can I get a witness right here? They would rather see Trump on the, on, on the throne than Jesus Christ himself. And, and they would rather see Biden or the Democratic Party on the throne than Jesus Christ himself. But at the end of the day, the only way this thing ends is with Christ on the throne. That's the only way it ends. And nothing's going to change that. And so we need to understand, and this church needed to understand, you're going to suffer some, some things. And the devil that has the power to cast you into prison, well, he's going to exercise that against you. So, so let's talk about that for just a second. We, we saw that Satan operates in the realm of political powers. He says you're going to have tribulation 10 days. And just get this key down. When you study the Bible, 10 is always the number of Gentiles in the Bible. And so what is God showing us in Revelation chapter 2? What God's showing us is, as we look back at church history, we look at this Smyrna period of church history from, from 200 to 325 AD. Listen, there were 10 official Roman persecutions against the church. Now, let me just say this. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, have, how many of you have heard of that book, Fox's Book of Martyrs? How many of you have actually read the book? I know you've heard of it. Okay, so not as many hands went up that have heard of it, went up that have read it. Okay, read your Bible and read Fox's Book of Martyrs. And the reason why is because God, God records for us and, and the saints record for us the persecution that the church has experienced from the very beginning. And as you read through Fox's Book of Martyrs, you're going to see these 10 Roman persecutions that come against the church. Saints are killed by the thousands and thousands. And yet the more they kill Christians, the more the saints multiply. Nero. Man, this dude was wicked. He had his wife and his mother killed. He burned Rome. He burned it for nine days. Many people blamed him for his conduct, but then he turned the blame to the Christians. And he said it was their fault. And so thousands of Christians were killed. Some were dressed in shirts made stiff with wax, fixed to trees, and set on fire in his garden to illuminate his garden. People like you and me being killed and burned as a nightlight in his garden. That's persecution against the church. And it came through a Roman political system that who is in control of? the devil's in control of. The second persecution came under Domitian in 81 to 96. He was known for his cruelty. He killed his brother. He raised the second persecution against Christians. In his rage, he killed many of the Roman Senate, either for malice or to confiscate their estates. It was during this time that John was boiled in oil. He survived through a miracle of God. Later, he was banished to Patmos. That's what we're studying in Revelation. Domitian made a law that no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempt from punishment without renouncing his religion. In other words, if you don't renounce Christ, you are going to die. The third persecution came under Trahan, and according to historians, he saw thousands of Christians being put to death daily. He, he, he was moved with pity. He certified that these people did nothing against the Roman law worthy of death. Nothing was done in their defense. This historian named Trahan, or excuse me, uh, uh, Pliny uh, recorded this. A man named Ignatius was martyred, one of the early quote-unquote church fathers. Another uh, disciple was, was a famous disciple, Eustatius, uh, was a brave, successful Roman commander. Uh, he was also martyred. Uh, he was enraged at what was happening against Christians, and then this ungrateful emperor had him and his family murdered as well. The fourth persecution under Antonius Pius and, and Marcus Aurelius uh, these guys had noble principles, uh, but they persecuted Christians.
for fear that they would destroy the state because they felt threatened. They, they felt threatened that the Christians would cause them to lose the Roman state. And so the way that we secure and preserve the state is to kill those that come against it. This is when Polycarp was martyred. Polycarp had this famous uh, quote. Uh, they gave him an opportunity to, to recant his faith before his death. Swear and I will release thee, reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, 86 years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How shall I blaspheme my king who had saved me? So they tied him up and they burned him at the stake and the fire surrounded him like an arch, but the fire didn't touch him. And upon seeing this, the executioner was ordered to pierce him with a sword. And when he pierced, a great quantity of blood came out of his body and extinguished the fire. It was then that Polycarp went to his king and savior. Historians say that Polycarp was also a pastor at the church of Smyrna. He was a disciple of the apostle John. The fifth persecution came under Severus. Having recovered from a, a severe fit of sickness through a Christian, favored Christians in general, but because of the prejudice and fury of the multitude against them and their alarming growth, it caused the pagans to panic. The per persecution started to Tertullian, who lived during this time period, informs us that Christians had collectively withdrawn themselves from Roman territories. The empire would have greatly depopulated. In other words, the, the church was growing tremendously so that majority of Roman citizenship was now Christian. Maximus, the sixth persecution. Again, there was a, a global extermination of Christians. Numberless Christians were slain without trial and buried indiscriminately in heaps, sometimes 50 or 60 being cast into a pit together without the least of decency. The seventh persecution under Decius, it was brought on because of Decius's hatred for his predecessor, Philip, who was a Christian, and partly by his jealousy concerning the amazing increase in Christianity, heathen temples began to be forsaken, and the Christian churches grew. During this time, error crept into the church. The heathens were taking the law into their own hands and were killing Christians and considered it a merit. They're doing society a favor. The eighth persecution under Valerian. The martyrs that fell during this time period were innumerable, and their tortures were various and painful. Rank, gender, nor age were regarded. Edict of 257 and 258 ordered that Christian leaders should be put to death. They did not take part in sacrificing to the gods. It's just whacked out. Aurelius, the ninth persecution, a most remarkable of, of event took place. There were a legion of soldiers consisting of 6,666 men, and they were all Christians. And this legion was called the Thebian Legion, named from the place they were raised. They were ordered to march over the Alps into Gaul, and the emperor maximum ordered a, a general sacrifice in which the whole army was to assist. This would have been a pagan sacrifice. They were to take an oath of allegiance and swear at that time to assist the extermination of the Christians in Gaul. Well, the whole legion refused to sacrifice or to take the oath. And so the emperor was so enraged that he ordered every 10th soldier to be butchered in front of the legion. You're not going to do what I told you to do? Count off 10, the 10th man gets killed, and then do it again until we go through the whole 6,666 men. After this, listen, the legion was still committed to their faith so that every 10th soldier was slain again. Thinking this would cause the men to recant, it made no effect on them at all. So he had the whole legion butchered by the other soldiers. Be faithful to the death. The tenth persecution was under Diocletian. Under Diocletian, he ordered, this emperor, Roman emperor, ordered four edicts against the Christian. The first edict was churches should be destroyed, scriptures should be burned, Christians of position would lose their honor, and those of lower rank would lose their liberty. Death was not pronounced as a penalty, but many died. The second edict called for leaders of the Christians to be thrown into prison. The third edict caused Christian leaders who would not sacrifice to pagan idols would be thrown into prison and suffer cruel tortures. And then the fourth edict decreed that all Christians everywhere should sacrifice on threat of being put to death in a war of extermination. 
Historically, when you study these persecutions, those, that, that, that 10 days, certainly historically, there's, a, there's 10 official Roman persecutions against the church. And it was always Rome that God, excuse me, the devil was using to persecute the church. Why? Because the devil has a religious system and the devil has a political system. And it's always wrong. It's always wrong. Doctrinally, I think that, that foreshadows for us another Roman persecution that's going to happen in the future. But this time it's going to happen under, under a satanic religious political system in the tribulation. Where God will persecute, excuse me, the devil will persecute the nation of Israel. And again, we said that there's, there's kind of a double application of these seven churches. They also represent uh, things that are going to happen in the tribulation. Daniel, for instance, if you go back to Daniel chapter 1, Daniel was under Gentile control. Remember when, when uh, Israel was taken into Babylonian captivity, right? Uh, Daniel was, was taken into captivity, was made a eunuch. And in Daniel chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, the Bible says that he was proven for 10 days. And his proving had everything to do with his diet because he refused to eat the king's meat. You guys remember that story? And so he says, hey, I don't want to defile my body, so give me pulse to eat, right? Give me, give me oatmeal or whatever, whatever pulse is. And, and the, the, the captain over the eunuchs was like, bro, if you, if you lose weight and get skinny, uh, I'm going to die. And he was like, you don't worry about it. You just, you just let me show you what my God can do type thing. God miraculously provided for his people in captivity under Gentile persecution and God fed them miraculously. Daniel and his servants and his friends had a greater countenance, a fairer countenance, a fatter countenance in the flesh than all the other children who ate the, the king's meat. That same thing's going to happen again in the tribulation. God's going to feed his people. And, and he's going to provide for them just like he did. But, but listen, that's all prophetic. What about us? How do, how do we land this in a, and say, hey, here's some things we can learn from the church at Smyrna. Well, here's a couple of devotional keys that I think are important. Number one. The promise of suffering comes with a plea not to fear. So there is a promise of suffering. But you don't have to fear that. Again, the devil is going to cast some of those in Smyrna into prison. Jesus says that you may be tried. Prison is an extension of human government punishment, right? I mean, that's what it is. It's an extension of of human government. It's a, it's a type of punishment that the government institutes. And so the, the historical church in Smyrna would have been under Roman authority. Please again be reminded that, that God says it's the devil that's going to put you in prison. Even though God is, or excuse me, the devil is using this Roman political system. And, and for our application, we need to understand that suffering is promised, but when it begins, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. And let me just give you 1 Peter chapter 4 as an encouragement. Because listen, when, when we experience suffering, by the way, you don't, you don't suffer yet in this country as a Christian. Now, if you want to get on an airplane, we'll, we'll go to some places where you really suffer. Even to the point of death. If they find you with a Bible, they're going to kill you. If they find you corporately gathering with other Christians, they're going to imprison you. So we can go to those places. Now, we don't suffer yet in this in this in this country. It's coming. Don't worry. It's coming. When the suffering co comes and when it occurs, you don't have to fear that. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, it, Peter writes and he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. And man, that's what we do. When it gets hard, we kind of like, oh man, this is, I thought, I thought it was supposed to be easy as a Christian. Right? My world's falling apart, or I'm experiencing persecution, or, or they're telling us we can't preach and teach the gospel, or we can't corporately meet anymore. What are we going to do? Well, one, we, we don't need to think it's strange. It's happened for 2,000 years. We're just ignorant. <laughs> Two, he says in verse 13, but rejoice. In so much as you're partakers of... Whose sufferings? Christ's sufferings. It's not even about you. I know that hurts, but it's true. It's not even about you. It's not about me. 
These are Christ's sufferings. That when his glory shall be revealed, you will be glad with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, listen, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you, and on their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. And I just want to encourage the church, listen, your praise should be perfected in the midst of persecution. Because it's all about his glory. It's all about experiencing his sufferings for his glory. What are you willing to suffer for Christ's glory? I mean, some of us won't even suffer to get here at 11 o'clock. Are you kidding me? Some of us won't even suffer to get here two weeks in a row. I mean, we, we are not facing any persecution in this place. And that's probably why our praise isn't perfected. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul writes and he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, Paul knew Christ, but Paul's desire was to know Christ more. He wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection. And can I just tell you, you can't know the power of Christ's resurrection until you're dead. Because that is the power of the resurrection, death to life. And listen, we want to know Christ, and we want to know the power of his resurrection, but many times we don't want to know the fellowship of his sufferings because we know that those sufferings lead to death. And yet, that is the very thing that we can rejoice in. And so, and so if we can go back to the text very quickly. Christ himself charges this church, be thou faithful unto death. And I'll give you a crown of life. Okay, so getting the last couple of points done. Our faithfulness gets rewarded. And we don't deserve that, by the way. We don't deserve that. But your faithfulness to Jesus Christ will get rewarded. And, and he says that he's going to give this crown of life. And, and if you study the Bible, we're way out of time. But, but can I just tell you, there are five crowns that are mentioned. I'll go through them very quickly. Number one, this crown of life, it's also called the martyr's crown. It's given to those who love Christ so much that they will lay down their life to overcome temptation and persecution and be faithful unto the death. Now, the truth is most people in this room will never have to give their life for Christ, but that doesn't mean you can't be faithful unto your death. You can be faithful unto your death. And if God gives you 60, 70, 80, 90 years, you can be faithful. You can be faithful to your death. Again, you find that crown of life in James. He talks about enduring temptation. When he's tried, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to them that love him. Again, remi reminder that the book of James is written to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Again, there is a tribulation context to that. Secondly, there's a, a crown of righteousness. And that crown is given to those who love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 to 8, Paul says, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. I mean, listen, if you love his appearing, if you're looking for him every day, well, well God's kind of God's looking for that. He wants to see that heart. He wants to see that desire. Number three, there's an incorruptible crown. That's given to everyone who have not fallen away from the faith. They've maintained a testimony to Jesus Christ and to others by being temperate or moderate in all these different areas, physically, spiritually, mentally. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 25, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things, now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but, but we an incorruptible. So there's this incorruptible crown that's available. Number four is the crown of rejoicing. It's given to those people who lead people to Jesus Christ. There's rejoicing in heaven when somebody gets saved. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 19, What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ is his coming. Listen, who is in heaven because of you? 
Who will be your crown of rejoicing? Will you even have one crown of rejoicing at the judgment seat of Christ? Number five, the, glory, the crown of glory. And this crown is given to those who shepherd or pastor people in the word of God. Any believer who's actively investing the word of God into other people, they're disciple makers. As Paul writes to the, or excuse me, as Peter writes to the elders in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4, he says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not of filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. You don't waste your life when you invest the word of God in the lives of people. As a matter of fact, God rewards that with a crown, a crown of glory. And so get this key point. Listen, since rewards are crowns, you won't rule without one. I mean, the whole, the whole point is that Christ wants us to rule and to reign with him in his earthly kingdom, in the millennium. Well, you got to have a crown to do that. And I know your blanks are filled in, but don't, don't shut your Bible or your mind just yet. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11. It's a faithful saying, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And the context is from reigning with him. You've got to have a crown to reign. For the church at Smyrna, being faithful to the death, earned them a crown of life. It says in verse 11, and we're done. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And, and let me just tell you, doctrinally, you have no danger of the second death as a believer in Christ. This is where the doctrinal application of this passage is not for church age saints today, because we're already overcomers in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when you study the second death, Revelation 20, Revelation 21, for those of you that are students of the Bible, let me just tell you, the second death shows up at the great white throne judgment. And the believer in Christ has already experienced the rapture. They've been through the judgment seat of Christ. They've experienced the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. They've ruled and reigned with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. The battle of Gog and Magog has already happened, and Satan has been cast into the lake of fire. And there's, then there's a great white throne judgment and people are cast into the lake of fire. And the Bible says in Revelation 20 and verse 14, this is the second death. Listen, for a believer in Christ, that has no power over you. You don't have to overcome anything because you're already in Christ. Does that make sense? But there is a direct doctrinal con context for that in the tribulation period. And let me just say, if you're not saved today, you do have to worry about that. The bad thing, the worst thing is not only to die once, but to die twice. To die physically, but then to experience the second death in a lake of fire for eternity. Man, who in the world would want that? Nobody wants that. What can we learn from Smyrna? We learned we just need to be faithful. We learned that suffering comes, persecution comes, but Christ is faithful. Christ is faithful. We'll never experience anything that Christ hasn't already experienced. We'll never walk through anything that Christ hasn't already walked through. And he will be the one that sustains us through that. Let's pray and we'll, we'll be done. Father, we